Before 2004, I enjoyed a lot of things in this world, but gallivanting about it for shits and giggles wasn't one of them. It never occurred to me to search my soul for the reason why. As if somebody asked me why I didn't watch golf on TV, I simply didn't give a hoot. If somebody wanted to strap themselves into a cramped airplane seat for 10 hours to go see a bunch of castles, then so be it. Donna had a different view about travel. When my wife was 16, she went to Finland to be an exchange student. She returned to Europe twice on backpacking trips. She'd been to a dozen countries by the time we met in college. When I first saw her dorm room, I found a wall covered with maps and photos of places and people. We had so much in common, except for this. She always wanted me to take a trip to Europe and wondered why I resisted something she found so exciting, especially since I was otherwise halfway adventurous. After years of hounding, I finally started wondering myself. Some of the answers came right away, some came during our big trip, and some are still coming as I say these words. I realized that people who longed to visit other countries were history lovers. I had a tremendous disregard for history. As a kid, I didn't care about anything outside my lunch pail, let alone what other people did thousands of years before me. One glance at those line art drawings in those dusty books, and my eyes would start drifting to Becky Turnbull's miniskirt. At my Christian grammar school, I'd listen to some pretty terrifying tales about traveling abroad. The missionary kids told exotic stories about watching machete fights and chasing bow constrictors. At chapel services, foreign evangelists shared details of torture and murder. It got my heart pumping, but it didn't inspire me to start packing. I was convinced the world was a shit show, and the only safe haven was my house, or maybe the surface of the moon. Growing into my teen years, I discovered the most appealing offerings of our society related to sex and rock and roll. Of course, drugs didn't interest me, especially the trip part. I seldom ventured outside the little box I called my life. At 18, I went to Canada. Not to avoid Vietnam, it had ended five years earlier. Vancouver was less than a two-hour drive from my house in Seattle. Ted Nugent was starting a tour up there. The drinking age was only 18, and I'd heard the Canadian girls were foxy. These were strong enough reasons to cross the border, which was about as challenging as ordering a breakfast jack. While there, my friends and I stayed under the radar. I took my box with me and remained inside it. My attitude toward travel sustained. Then after 14 years of marriage and three kids, Donna proposed that our gang of five take an extended trip to Europe. I use the term trip loosely. It was more than a proposal. She ratcheted up her intention a notch, and it was clear she was serious. Damn serious. My father-in-law stood by the front door. You need to start loading up, Lee said, tapping his watch. It's nearly noon. My God, is this really happening? The living room bustled with nerve-wracking energy. Donna's mother, Sherry, bolted out from her den, waving five boarding passes she had just printed. Scared shitless, I balanced on my shaking knees beside my backpack. My hand clutched my shiny new camcorder. Buying it had brought me such joy only days earlier. Now I'd just as soon chuck it across the room than take it along. My knuckles were sore after tucking its charger and batteries into the last available square inches of my backpack. Are we really going to need this? Donna held up a finger. Don't start, Jeffrey. She stood behind our preteen son, Chris, fighting his pack zipper. She pivoted her head toward our oldest son, Alex. Do you have room for Dad's camcorder? 
The 15-year-old remained perched against the wall, arms crossed, jaws chewing, gazing steadily at the floor. Alex! His eyeballs darted up under scowling eyebrows. He removed his headphones and kicked at the bulging mass of nylon at his feet. Remember? Moments earlier, his sister tried to hit him up for some spare room for her soccer ball. Jill returned from the garage. With arms raised in victory, she held an old schoolbook pack in one hand and a ball pump in the other. She plopped down cross-legged next to a small pile of formerly vetoed travel gear, which included her now-deflated ball, and began stuffing. Donna's sister Lori sat on the couch, holding a bottle in the mouth of her newborn baby, the unexpected and beloved little Gracie. Next to her sat Glenn, Lori's longtime friend and freshly vowed husband. He sat motionless, observing the scurrying and hurrying going on before him. I'm certain his poker face was hiding a scowl. His newfound status of both husband and father was coincidental with the planning of this trip, and I'm certain he didn't appreciate the timing. For an instant, I felt guilty about leaving him and Lori to raise a newborn baby without our help. The feeling of guilt was replaced by envy. I wished my ass was on that couch. Jill stood up and strapped on the smaller pack. Dad, help me with the other one. I set the camcorder on the coffee table and grabbed her backpack from the floor, which felt like wrestling a giant sack of playground sand. After we negotiated the straps of both packs around her, I stepped back and observed my 14-year-old daughter. Really? She unzipped her front pack. Hand me your camera, Dad. No. Dad, I've got room. Honey, you're not wearing two packs through Europe. You look like a goddamn pack mule. Perhaps it was my tone of voice or the use of profanity amidst my children, but my words turned a few heads. We don't need to bring the camcorder, I added, or the soccer ball. We're packing way too much. Jeffrey, you spent nearly a mortgage payment on that camcorder. Yeah, Dad. Remember, it has the three-color chip, Chris added. I barely heard them. My head was pounding harder than my eardrums were. Who does this type of thing? This room was filled with the most influential people in our world. Surely one of them could stop this madness. Glenn needed to stand up and declare his true thoughts, how romping around castles for five months in socialist countries was a waste of money, and how people should stay home with their families, especially with new family members, ones that poop every ten minutes and cry for a bottle every five. My sweet and, more importantly, practical mother-in-law could have stopped this, Sherry initially expressed mixed emotions about Donna's choice how to spend the family inheritance. She had thought Donna was absolutely nuts. Where was that element of the mixture now? Come on, Sherry, block the door. My firstborn Alex could be my savior here. Now would be a great time for one of his signature tantrums to remind Donna how crazy and difficult being with him 24-7 was going to be. Come on, people. Just as I was about to go completely ape shit in front of my loved ones, Donna gently took the camcorder from my hand and fitted it into Jill's pack. She'll be fine, honey. And so will you. Get us to the airport alive. Lee weaved my new Chevy Tahoe in and out of the lanes with the skill and finesse he'd earned by driving the L.A. freeways for most of his 70 years. Shit for brains, he hollered, passing a Prius hogging the fast lane. Pull over and kick his ass, Grandpa! Alex! Donna reached back and put the death grip on his knee, only to get maniacal laughter in return. 
Dad, it's been raining. Slow down a little bit. Only three hours before your airplane leaves, Donna, he said, changing lanes in front of an 18-wheeler so close I could study the anatomy of every dead bug on the grill. That's ridiculous getting to the airport that early. Goddamn terrorists. Uh, Lee, that Nissan in front of us is stopping. They ought to line them up, bend them over, and... Dad! Okay, I see him. He swerved into the adjacent lane just in the nick of time. Donna clenched my arm. The kid snickered. Grandpa, that's a CHP parked on the shoulder ahead. I see him too, Alex. Lee kept the wheel steady for all of 15 seconds until the black and white sedan disappeared from the rearview mirror. He slowed down, someplace in the 60s, and it seemed like a crawl. I figured he was thinking of something other than the road. And, oh yes, that's exactly what he was doing. I braced myself because this could mean only one thing. An advice speech was coming. Lee uttered those familiar words. You know, it's the type of thing. This means a speech is coming, which makes me nervous when the kids are within earshot. I imagined what he might say on this big day. When I was stationed in Guam, I drank enough red stripe to sink the island. Or, watch out for those Italian girls. They'll practically grab your pecker right there on the sidewalk. Instead, he came up with something deeper. You kids won't be the same when you get back. Silence fell over the car. Jill was the first to speak. What do you mean, Grandpa? Travel will change you. Yeah, Alex will turn 16 and I'll turn 12. No more than that, Chris, Lee said, changing lanes for the hundredth time. Your friends are going to seem immature. It'll be difficult for you to acclimate. Uh, Not to change the subject, Lee, I interjected, but we need the departing flights lane. Our heads collectively snapped to one side as he made the lateral move. He pulled into a curbside spot among the other cars dropping off other passengers. We got out, and I opened the lift gate. Lee was handing us our packs when I experienced my last moment of alarm on home soil. This one felt less harsh, probably because I realized and internalized that this trip was indeed going to happen. Beyond the hustle and bustle of this airport, there was a 747 with my name on it, and chances were very good it would take off as planned and not touch ground until we'd reached London freaking England. The kids gave their grandpa extra long hugs, and I took a deep breath and sadly rubbed my hand across the metallic green paint job of my new Tahoe. Lee gave Donna some last-minute advice, followed by a super big bear hug. He saved the last one for me and brought me in. I was centimeters from his face, close enough to smell his aftershave. Just as my cheek was becoming a bit too familiar with the tips of his stubble, he pulled back and revealed those big, hazel eyes of his. Always so sincere. They locked in tight with mine. His words were simple. You'll change too, Jeffrey. Turn this plane around. I clenched my arm wrist as the airplane sped faster and faster down the runway. I glanced out the window and sympathized with those last few raindrops desperately trying to cling on the plexiglass. Everything was moving by so rapidly out there. It was making me nauseous. Rather than fiddle around looking for a puke bag, I decided to shift my focus to the relatively less hectic interior of the cabin. Donna's eyes beamed with nervous excitement as she grabbed Jill's hand and clenched it tight. Chris was fixed on his video screen, which looked to be detailing our flight plan. Alex seemed oblivious to anything outside his headphones, even as the G-force of the thrusting plane pressed him back against his seat. The tires vibrating beneath us suddenly abandoned the runway. The unsettling sense of weightlessness followed as the giant bird lifted upward, disconnecting me from my world below. 
God only knows what remnants will still be there when or if I get back. A voice came over the intercom. We'll be arriving in London Heathrow Airport in approximately 11 hours. Attempting to calm myself down, I took a deep breath and glanced back out the window. As I studied a few stubborn raindrops trying to maintain their grip, the woman in the window seat abruptly pulled down the shade. I closed my eyes. When, I thought, did I ever agree to this?